Racism, from the sermon series, Justice Matters, spoken by Pastor Sanita Ponton. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in week five of our Justice Matters series. Good morning. Uh, if you would, let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us this morning. God, we thank you for all that our eyes have seen and all that our ears have heard. And now, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak as only you know how. I have studied as best I know how, but you must speak, God. I have prepared and prayed um, as best I know how, Lord, but you must preach. And I have written words on paper, but I ask God that you would write these words in our hearts that we might not sin against you or against one another. And now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. 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 In 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois, who is a black American sociologist and historian and was the first African-American to receive his Ph.D. from um, Harvard University, he wrote in the book, The Souls of Black Folk, that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. Now, over 115 years later, we can look around and admit that while things have changed significantly for the better for racial minorities in this country, the problem of the color line still exists. And so this morning, we talk about the issue of racism, not because we have not made progress in this world, but because there is still work to be done. If you had a child who was capable of making all A's, you would, um, you would stay on this child until this child, and you would demand more of the child until this child did better, until she got her grades um, a little bit higher. And if that child started to receive D's or low C's, you might celebrate it, but you would still want her to improve. And so now we stand together because we understand that your child can reach their full potential and our country could reach its full potential. So to speak on the issue of racism in 2018 is not to discount or discredit the strides that have been made in this country, but it is to say that we can do better. And it's to say that America has not reached its potential. It is to say, yes, we have elected a black president back in 2008 and 2012, but Charlottesville took place last year. And this year, just a few weeks ago, white supremacists felt comfortable rallying in front of the White House. And so this morning, I have the honor of speaking with you about one of the most uncomfortable and controversial topics in the church, racism. But I'm glad we're talking about it. In fact, I commend Metro for tackling some very difficult issues these past few weeks. We've talked about immigration, the environment, sexism and incarceration, and now racism. So repeat after me, talking about racism. Talking about racism. Yeah, no, for real. Repeat after me. <laughs> talking about racism, talking about racism. Does, not make me a racist. does not make me a racist. Now turn to your neighbor, what we like to do in some black churches, and say, talking about racism, talking about racism. does not make you a racist. Thank you, thank you. 
In fact, to not talk about it or to shrink when it is mentioned actually makes you a coward. Because racism is so polarizing, talking about racism actually makes you bold. It makes you brave. That's why we're talking about it this morning. We're talking about racism because it is sinful and it is evil, and only God has the remedy for sin and evil in this world. So if the church doesn't talk about it, it won't be solved. We talk about racism because Jesus has reconciled us to us in him as one. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, that Jesus has destroyed the barrier or the dividing wall of racial and ethnic hostility. We are one in humanity in Christ. We talk about racism because we have been given the, rec- the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile all to God and one with another. But reconciliation requires conversation. And we, especially Christians, cannot ignore conversations on racism. Ignoring the problem won't make it go away. If you put your bills in a drawer when they come every month, they don't get magically paid. You have to deal with them. So if we're going to end racism, we must discuss it in the church and outside of the church. So let's be clear about what we mean by racism or racist. If you recall, a few months ago, Daniel Hill was here. And in his book, White Awake, he provides some helpful definitions. He tells us that ethnicity refers to the way people identify with each other based on commonalities such as language, history, ancestry, nationality, customs, cuisine, and art. You can be ethnically Colombian or Korean or Chinese or Jamaican or Irish, for example. Race, he reminds us, is something different. Race is a social construct that was historically used to separate and discriminate whites from blacks, Latinos, and Asians. Daniel further further points us towards Brian Stevens's notion of the narrative of racial difference. The narrative of racial difference reminds us that it's not just difference that's important, but it's the value that we place on difference, such that white is right and and black is bad, that makes, and all others fall somewhere in between. For example, distinctions had to be made between black and white to determine who would be a slave and who would not be. That value that black people were considered three-fifths of a human without souls and no better than an animal combined with power to carry out the consequences of those distinctions and values is what I would call racism. My definition of racism is, is negative or positive value placed on ethnic difference combined with the power to exert privilege. And this, brothers and sisters, is sin. Racism is sin. And let's be clear, racism still exists in our world. In the 2014 school year, nationally, black girls were suspended from elementary school at a rate of six times that of white girls. The rate for Latinas was three times that of white girls. One of the reasons, according to Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality, is that adults view young black girls as less innocent and more adult-like starting at the age of five. Black children are having the police calls on them for what we in the suburbs would consider just suburban living, selling lemonade and water outside their homes. There are currently only three black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. 
And in 2016, four out of five Fortune 500 board appointees were white. That means that only one in five Fortune 500 board appointees was either black, Asian, or Latino. And Crazy Rich Asian is the first major blockbuster with an all-Asian cast in Hollywood that is not a period piece in 25 years. 25 years. Finally, in 2018, there's a movie that defies the Asian stereotypes of martial artists or nerd. Asian men are finally seen as strong black leads, not stripped of their masculinity. And Asian women, <laughs> that's right, and Asian women, my sisters, are finally multidimensional and not fetishized. Racism still exists, and all of us have been affected by the sin of racism. Racism permeates our society, and all of us have been infected and affected by it. In our country, and indeed in most of the world, whiteness is seen as the best, the most intelligent, the highly coveted, the good. And blackness is seen as the worst, unintellectual, lazy, and bad. On a spectrum, whiteness is where you want to be and where you work so hard to stay away from blackness as far as possible. And this lie, though we try to deny it, has deeply impacted most of us. Take, for example, what used to be known as the paper bag test. The paper bag test was used within black communities to determine access. Racism had so permeated the black psyche that lighter-skinned black people were afforded more advantages than darker-skinned black people, even within the black community. Enter the paper bag test. If you were lighter than a paper bag, you could, for example, gain admission into one of the elite historically-backed colleges and universities. You could gain entry into the highly coveted black social clubs. Even within the black community, some black families tried to restrict their children to only marry those so they could maintain the lightest skin color, the lightest eye color, the best hair, and other European traits. It sounds crazy, right? And then I learned that black people weren't the only ones who did it. It may not be the paper bag test, but I realize that so many minority groups, every minority group places higher value on lighter skinned people within their own ethnicity. Latinos do it, Indian subcontinentals, even Asians will try to avoid the darkening of their skin by the sun. They will try to whiten their skin with skin lightening creams and bleaches. And why? Because whiteness has been presented to us, directly or indirectly, as ideal. Have you ever wondered, have you ever asked yourself, why is it that so many of us strive for white skin, European-looking eyes, and long, straight, or wavy hair? What makes the European look the most coveted look, even among people of color? The sin of racism, that there is something wrong with being other than white. That is shameful, and that is ugly, and that is the sin that permeates our society and even our hearts and minds. And the effect of the sin of racism, like all other sins, is that people get hurt. People are hurting because racism exists. People are hurting because the sin of racism has been allowed to eat at our hearts and our minds unchecked. 
and it's been allowed to do so because we're afraid to talk about it. The church has been silent. But what does it say about God when the church, his church, is silent when people are hurting? Think about that. The apathy and indifference of the church and Christians is turning people away from our churches and from God. Our silence is a terrible witness to God. Shouldn't the church have something to say about the sin of racism? Doesn't the word of God provide healing? What is the good news for those who have been victims of racism? And let's be clear, we are all victims of racism. We have either wrongly benefited from it or wrongly been oppressed by it. So what does the word of God have to say to us? If you would, I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts chapter 10. And I'm going to walk you through the beginning of it, and then we'll pick up in verse 9. This story takes place in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital and the place of residence of the Roman governor. The dominant population was Gentile, and there was friction between the Gentiles and the minority Jewish community. And in the beginning of chapter 10, we meet Cornelius, a centurion who had a vision and saw the angel of the Lord tell him that his prayers had been heard and that he should send men to find Simon Peter, who was staying in the Jewish home of the Tanner in Joppa. A centurion was the commander of a military army of about 100. And this particular centurion, Cornelius, is considered a devout man. He's God-fearing, but he's also a Gentile, which means that he has been ineligible. He's been made ineligible to hear the gospel message. And it's simply because he's a Gentile. But because of an angel who comes to Cornelius and tells him to send men to Peter, Cornelius does. And if you remember, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples and is now responsible for spreading the gospel message. So let's turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 9, and it reads as follows. About noon the following day, as they were on on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became angry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything unclean or impure. And Peter is referring to the Levitical laws. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still speaking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? And we'll jump down to verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called friends together. 
As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went outside. Peter went inside, excuse me, and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, and I want you to pay attention to this. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you why you have sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house preparing at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon, the tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak and pay attention to what Peter says. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And now verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of God. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but to them this was a big deal because Jews and Gentiles were not even allowed to associate with one another. Jews considered Gentiles unclean and would not speak with them, much less be in their homes or allow them to stay in their homes. These sorts of intimate relationships with Gentiles were contrary to Jewish practice. It wasn't unlike apartheid in South Africa or segregation in the United States. But in our Bibles, we find a movement to break down the barriers between ethnicities to deal with their version of racism. So what are some ways that Christians can faithfully address racism in our context? And let me say this at the onset, these are not the only ways, and this is not the only conversation that needs to be had on racism. But one of the first of many ways Christians can faithfully address racism is to treat racism like any other sin. Treat racism like any other sin. As we've discussed, racism makes distinctions between people groups and then places value on those distinctions. The value placed in the distinction combined with the power to penalize or grant privilege because of that value is racism. And the Bible is clear, as Peter points out in verses 34 through 35, that God shows no favoritism or what the, NI, or the King James Version calls no partiality among people on the basis of their ethnicity, life stations, or possessions. When people act contrary to God, showing favoritism to one over the other or penalizing or oppressing one over the other on the basis of race, that is a sin. 
And as Christians, we have the obligation to attack racism the way we would attack any other sin in our lives. But oftentimes we won't. If this sermon were about pride or greed or anger or jealousy or shame, we would ask God to search our souls and uncover the sin that resides there so we can repent. We would say like the psalmist, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. But too many of us are afraid of what we might find lurking inside our hearts that we don't do that when it comes to race. But I challenge you, all of you, to ask God to search your hearts to reveal any prejudice that may reside there, ways you have been complicit in someone else's pain, and the ways you have been affected either as a beneficiary or a victim of racism. Upon becoming aware of the sin in ourselves or the ways we have benefited from it, we ask God for forgiveness, we repent, and we seek transformation or change. Have you benefited from being considered the model minority? I know I have benefited from being considered, from being a light-skinned, highly educated black woman. And every opportunity I have that presents itself, I remind people that I'm not the exception. I remind others that black people are brilliant and can do more than just run with a ball, make a basket, sing, and dance. Not all have been given the opportunity to express their intelligence. And not all have taken advantage of it, but it's there. And not only do we need to attack racism on an individual level, the church has to attack racism on an institutional level. In our churches, in our systems of government, in our education, in our businesses, the church has to ask the question, why? Why are minorities overrepresented in jails but not in colleges and in boardrooms? We hear these statistics and they seem to raise no alarms in our minds. Is it because we secretly believe that there is something innate in black and brown people that makes us criminals? Or something innate about whiteness or certain types of Asianness, because not all Asians excel academically at the same rates, that are innately better than others intellectually? The church is called to interrogate the world around it through the lens of the Bible. If we see partiality or favoritism at play, we need to interrogate it. First, we must treat racism like any other sin in our lives. But next, we must be willing to admit our own prejudices. We must be willing to admit our own prejudices, our own racist tendencies, our own racism. And I know no one wants to do this. No one wants to think of themselves as racist because we imagine the, a member of the KKA. We imagine a slaveholder, we imagine the German Nazi soldier, and yes, those indeed are racist, but they are so extreme. Most of us operate in less extreme ways. Like when a teacher claims that a black student is disruptive when they ask too many questions, but a white student is inquisitive. Or when a teacher assumes that an Asian student who hasn't done well on a test just had a bad day, but a Latino student is lazy or incapable. And I'm not making this up. These are stories from my former students. We hired an SAT tutor at my old job, and I worked primarily with black and Latino kids. And he told them that it didn't matter what they received on the SAT because as minorities, they would get into college anyway. You know, affirmative action. 
That tutor refused to believe that my students were capable of college admissions based upon their intellect, their resourcefulness, their grit, their creativity, and well-roundedness. And no, he wasn't wearing a white robe, but when you set lower expectations for some students, you are showing favoritism to others. And it comes out in how you teach them and how you act towards them. That is racist. Yes, I have been called the N-word, and right here in Teaneck, I have been followed in stores, I have been intimidated and harassed, my place in certain schools has been questioned, and by the way, why is it always a black or Latino student who has stolen your spot? Why can't it be any number of the white men or women who have also gained admission to the school you want to attend? But what happens most often to me is that I am called articulate. Do you know how insulting it is to call a black woman with a college degree from an Ivy League school and two graduate degrees articulate? Of course I'm articulate. <laughs> after years of schooling, after all the money that has been paid and then I'm still paying, I better be articulate. <laughs> I'm not a unicorn. I'm not an exception to the rule. I am educated. Please stop being surprised when a black or brown person can make her subjects and verb agree. Don't be surprised because we can use words that require more than four letters. We have to pay attention to our assumptions. We need to be able to admit our own prejudices, even as Christians. Because Christians can be racist too. Peter was. Look in the text. Peter is a Jewish man, and he thought differently about Gentiles. He considered them to be dirty and unclean. He says it. And not just Peter, all Jews thought that way. They were taught to think that way. The Jews had taken God's command to be separate and distinct from other people groups and place value on those groups. God had chosen the Jews to be his people through which the world would be saved. And Jews took that as they were the only people God cared about and all others were unclean and unworthy. His culture had taught him and it had been passed down for thousands of generations. And just look at the hypocrisy of Peter. Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner. Now, why is that important? That is important because Simon the Tanner was considered unclean by the Jews because tanners worked with the skins of dead animals. But Simon is Jewish. Peter is a classic example of the irrationality of racism. Peter was willing to stay with a Jewish unclean man, but not go into the home of a Gentile. It begs the question to Peter, is the issue the holiness codes, which is what determines clean and unclean, or is it the ethnicity of the person, the cultural norms that said that Gentiles were dirty and beneath them? Peter shows us that even those who, can ha who have a close, deep encounter with Jesus can still harbor racist beliefs. Christianity in this country is a perfect example as well. Did you know that one of the first slave ships to bring slaves from Africa to the Dominican Republic was called Jesus the Lubeck? 
and later renamed the good ship Jesus? Can you imagine people stolen from their country, bound in shackles, on the bottom of a slave ship, while Christian men worship God overhead on the top of the ship, steer you to a foreign country against your will to be sold into slavery? Did you know that the official name of the KKK is the Christian Knights of the Ku Klux Klan? Even as recently as this year, the Bible has been used to justify cruel treatment of people, separating children from their parents because they crossed a line in a land that was originally stolen from Native Americans under the guise of manifest destiny, that God authorized this. The way Christianity and racism have been intertwined in this country is sinful, and the church needs to admit it. Christianity has been hijacked by whiteness, and God is not pleased. In the name of God, we have treated people as less than the image bearers of God that they are. And who always benefits from it? And who always suffers? We bear the responsibility of, as Christians of righting this wrong. But it starts with the admission that we hold beliefs and sentiments that are racist and harmful. Peter needed the intervention of the Holy Spirit to help him identify his prejudice, and so do we. The observance of the laws of clean and unclean and the cultural prejudices against Gentiles were so ingrained in Peter that he initially resisted. He said no to what God was telling him to do. What's more, Peter helps us understand how our laws, our country, our culture can be so deeply ingrained in us that we resist even when the Holy Spirit is speaking with us. This is how the sin of racism operates. This is how slavery could continue for 250 years. This is how Jim Crow could continue for 100 years. It's how Jews were killed in Nazi Germany, how the Japanese were interred in the West, how the Chinese were used as cheap labor to build the railroad system in America. It's how Puerto Rico continues to be in the dark and not fully receiving the support that it needs almost a year after Hurricane Maria. Even in the face of the Holy Spirit prompting for justice and equity, we can turn a blind eye because our racist cultural norms are so strongly and deeply embedded within us. We can't treat people this way. Peter's encounter with the Holy Spirit becomes his conversion as well a conversion of his attitude and his opinion of the Gentiles. God was dealing with his heart. And the condition of Peter's heart had implications for the entire religion. If the leadership, the preachers, the pastors, the evangelists, the spreaders of the gospel, those who call themselves Christ seekers are prejudiced, then it affects the entire witness of God to the world. This is why the church this is why Christians must be most vigilant on matters of race and on all justice matters. People associate our witness with who God is. And as Christians, we must do the hard work of self-examination, and we must do it often. If you know Peter's story, you know that in Galatians, Paul will rebuke him later for reverting back to his old ways and not wanting to be around Gentiles anymore. 
It's an ongoing process. Becoming a Christian did not mean that you changed overnight. You still had to work on some things in your life. Your greed, your jealousy, your anger, your low self-esteem, whatever it was, well, the sin of racism needs to be added to that list as well. Just like Peter, we need additional encounters from the Lord to see how he is moving us towards wholeness and holiness. There is no shame in dealing with your heart issues on the subject of race. We are all works in progress, but we can't be afraid to do the work. So if we want to begin to faithfully address racism, we first need to treat racism like any other sin. We need to admit our own prejudices. And third, we need to stop trying to be colorblind. Stop trying to be colorblind. Instead, let's strive to embrace the diversity that God has created us in. Don't erase it. Colorblindness says that I don't see color when I see you. This is done in an effort to assuage guilt if you or members of your racial background have been perpetrators of racism or to mitigate shame if you've benefited from racism. And often Christians will cite Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Let's look at it together. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, and this is true, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. Amen. This Galatians text focuses us on three areas of potential strife, ethnic relationships, economic status, and gender relationships. Unity in Jesus transcends all of these distinctions. Through Jesus Christ, the old racial schisms and cultural distinctions that marginalize and oppress people have been erased. But to heal those divisions and move beyond them takes the work that Peter had to do internally and then to walk in practice. Peter did not cease being an ethnic Jew when he became a Christian. Jesus restores us to who we are meant to be in him, not into something else. Christian unity does not erase ethnic distinctions. In the Galatians text, Paul is talking about bringing Gentiles into the Christian community as Gentiles, ensuring diversity in the church. Paul is talking about eliminating dominance, the power that people attach to distinctions, not erasing difference. Even in Christ, there are differences. For example, among spiritual gifts given or the offices held, our goal is to strive toward unity, to be uniquely who we are and who God created us to be, but to be that way together with mutuality and respect devoid of dominance and power. To deny ethnic difference carte blanche because we are too afraid to deal with the real issues of power and the discomfort of the sin of racism is to deny the image of God in each one of us. God loves diversity. That's why he made all of us different. 
God created us uniquely in our bodies with our skin color and our hair, from our uh, historical backgrounds, from our families, from our cultures. And that is good. In fact, when God created humanity, he said it was very good. This is why colorblindness is harmful. Colorblindness robs us of the uniqueness in which God has created us. What I believe people want to say is I try not to assign negative value to a person. And that is correct. But colorblindness is harmful. Sarah Shin, in her book, Beyond Colorblind, Redeeming Our Ethnic Journey, warns that the problem with colorblindness is that it makes us blind to issues that are based on color. We cannot address issues that we are too blind to see. Colorblindness doesn't notice that while Asians might be hired in large numbers by tech companies, they are the group least likely to be promoted to managerial and executive levels. Whites are twice as likely as Asians to hold executive positions. And the reason why? Many assume that Asians lack soft skills like leadership and good communication. Someone who was colorblind would say, that's not racist. Maybe those people just aren't good enough. Perhaps. But ask the questions. Are there stereotypes about Asians at work? Asians are hard workers. We can agree to that, the stereotype would say. But they're too docile to be leaders. Are opportunities being made for Asians to develop the leadership qualities needed or given the opportunity to exhibit leadership skills? Are Asians being mentored at the same rates as whites? How is it possible that successful businesses operate in Korea, in China, in India, in the Philippines, but Asians in America seem to lack leadership skills? (laughs) Colorblindness doesn't even ask the question. When you strive toward colorblindness, you don't even see when one's color is the cause of an injustice perpetrated against them. And when we are colorblind, we do little to help break down the injustice that impacts racial minorities. Furthermore, and more dangerous for Christians, we lose our prophetic voice. We won't talk about race, or we push it aside as being too political. We love Jesus, but we forget about his people. And we've got this all wrong. We say that some things are political and some things are religious. But that's not true at all. There is no topic off limit to the church because there's no topic off limit to God. God is sovereign. Amen? Amen. That means he is involved in everything. God is Lord over all. Amen? Amen? That means he is in everything. The Bible declares the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Everything, everything in Congress, everything in the courts, everything on the news, everything in the schools, everything in the jails, everything. The church has something to say about racism because God has something to say about it. And we cannot use the excuse of colorblindness any longer. We cannot hide or try to erase the uniqueness God created in each one of us. We cannot turn a blind eye to injustice that impacts racial minorities in the name of not seeing color. Color blindness is not an option for the Christian. We celebrate God's diversity of creation. 
We believe that we are created in the image of God, and so is our brother or sister. And when that image is tarnished because of the sin of racism, we cannot overlook it, we cannot simplify it in the name of colorblindness. So to move towards a faithful response to racism, as Christians, we treat racism like any other sin. We admit our own prejudices and work towards repentance and transformation. We resist the desire to be colorblind. And finally, we partner with God to be the answer to someone's prayer for justice. We partner with God to be the answer to someone's prayer for justice. When you go back and you look at Acts chapter 10, verses 30 through 31, you see that Cornelius had been praying. While we don't know the details of his exact prayer, we do know that God used Peter to answer his prayer. Peter became the answer to Cornelius' prayer, and Cornelius and his entire family were saved. Do you realize that there are so many people of color who are praying to be saved from the sin of racism? They are praying for justice. We recognize that racism is a sin, but there are people on the other side of that the people who are being sinned against. And that's where justice is needed. Just a few chapters before in Acts chapter 6, we see the story of the disciples being confronted with a problem. There were Hellenistic Jews, Greek Jews, and they were widows. And they said that they were not receiving the same rations as the Hebraic Jews, who were a part of the leadership and the majority. When the widows complained, the disciples did something about it. They did not dismiss their complaints or refuse to recognize the difference. They empowered people to help them, naming the first group that would be what most of our churches call deacons. Many people of color are crying out to God, but will the church partner with God to help them achieve justice? Will Christians come alongside God to restore the dignity that has been lost? to acknowledge and not dismiss the sin that has been and continues to be perpetrated against people of color, to pay attention and not trivialize the pain of those who have been sinned against. Right now, someone is praying for a school system that may be majority-minority, like the Inglewood school system, but is properly funded and filled with teachers and administrators who care about the education of black and brown children. Someone is praying for justice for their child who has been killed at the hands of a police officer. Someone is praying that they will not be overlooked for a promotion at their job because they're not part of the good old boys network. Someone is praying that they can find a toy or a TV show or a book that represents their child's beautiful ethnic background. Someone is praying to be reunited with their child and given the right to seek asylum in a country that claims to be the land of the free. Someone is praying that their child whom they just sent off to college will not be harassed and questioned about their, being, or about their belonging in an institution of higher education. We have to be the answer to someone's prayer for justice. We have to pay attention. We have to ask questions. We have to speak up for other people and we have to speak up for ourselves. We can't let racist comments slide, and we have to believe people of color when they say racism is at play. Brothers and sisters, the gospel calls us towards reconciliation. Jesus broke the barriers, but we're still allowing the world's view of the other to inform how we operate. 
And to talk about racism is not to rehash it. It's to speak to our reality so we can invite people to live in the freedom of unity. All reconciliation begins with a conversation. It demands truth-telling, that racism exists, and too many churches and too many Christians refuse to admit it. I have to admit that sometimes it's really hard for me to be a black woman and a Christian. I'm just being honest. As with all Christians, I have a lot of people in my life whom I'm praying for that they would be saved one day. And some of them have legitimate questions and concerns about the gospel. I understand that and I try to relate grace and love and whatever divine wisdom God would give me. But the hardest person for me to speak with is the person of color who doesn't understand how I, as a black woman, could be a Christian. They argue that Christianity has and continues to perpetrate racism. They point to slavery, Jim Crow, and even a lot of contemporary white evangelicals. They point to the silence of the church and many Christians in the midst of all the injustice that, they, that we witness all around us every day. And they wonder about a God who is seemingly silent. They wonder about a people who claim to love God and neighbor and yet remain silent. And this is the hardest argument for me to counter because I understand it and because I think they're right. The church has been silent while people of color have suffered. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent for our silence. We need to repent for our own prejudices, for not paying attention, for not correcting the comments, for not believing someone, for being cowards, for refusing to follow the Holy Spirit as it moves us towards justice and reconciliation. Sometimes I get tired of defending the church that doesn't defend me. That's not the church that I love. And I mean church with a capital C, not Metro. Right? Church with a capital C. That's not the church of the God I serve. The church that I love rejoices when I rejoice and mourns when I mourn. The God I serve cares about those who are the victims of racism because my God is a God of justice. My God is a God of love. My God is a God of compassion. My God is a God who sees me. And my God is a God who hears the cries of his children and he comes and he saves. My God is a God who never leaves nor forsakes me. This is the message that we need to be sharing about our God, but we need to be witnesses to it in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for all that you are. Lord God, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for the diversity that exists in us. We thank you that all that you make and do is perfect. Lord God, we come this morning confessing that we hold prejudices against our brothers and sisters, that we have been victims 
And that that victimization sometimes causes pain and heartache and anger and sometimes even hatred. God, we come repenting because we have been beneficiaries of a system that is evil. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would grant us hope, that you would grant us peace, that you would grant us boldness, Lord God, that there would be Peter's in this room, God, who would seek transformation in their hearts and in their minds and would look differently at the world, that they would recognize that you show no favoritism, no partiality, God, and we shouldn't either. Lord, help us to do better. Help us to be better, God. Help us to love one another with the love that you have shown towards us. This is our prayer this morning through your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. At this time, we ask that you would pull out your bulletin or your Metro app. I want to take you through a few next steps. The first one is that I'm committing my life to Jesus Christ for the first time. Now, this wasn't a traditional gospel message, but I hope you understand that God loves you wherever you are and that he has already loved you from the very beginning. And if you are willing to accept his love, if you are willing to be in relationship with him, even in spite of how Christians may act sometimes, that we're all working towards this together, we ask that you would check that box. Afterwards, come meet us at the um, Newcomers Quick Stop or the next table, and we'll walk you through what it means to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Number two. I will read and pray through Psalm 51 this week with an eye towards asking God to show me the prejudices that may be in my heart. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance that David prayed. Number three, I will read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. I love this letter and I always recommend it because Martin Luther King, he wrote obviously many, many years ago, but he's writing as a pastor to pastors, calling on the church to become involved in justice matters because it matters to God, because it's about God's commission and God's love towards us. You can Google it and you'll find it online. Number four, I will learn about a culture other than my own. You know, part of this is understanding where other people are coming from. Get to know the history of someone else's culture. Get to know people of another culture. And number five, consider joining the cultural studies small group in the fall that I'll be leading. It's another opportunity to go deeper with all of these questions and all these issues and to get to know other people. 